so um, <laughs> for the uh, for the last, believe it or not, 135 weeks since June 24th of 2018, we have been taking a look at this precious, precious book of Psalms, uh, and that puts us in really good company because there's probably no other uh, portion of the Bible that's been more frequently read and reread than the Psalms, and throughout history, has been treasured by the people of God as a source of instruction and inspiration and consolation and motivation in good times and in bad. And above all that, the book of Psalms has been a book of the expression of worship. And it's not just suggested in it, it's enthusiastically encouraged its readers to praise the Lord for who He is and for what He's done. And in the process, offers us a glimpse after a glimpse uh, of hearts devoted to God, of, of individuals who looked hopefully to Him, uh, and of lives changed through encounters with Him as we travel through its pages. Uh, pages that, like the rest of Scripture, are not just thrown together at random, but are organized and curated by the mind of God and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on men who put them together. Because uh, remember, our Bible isn't just one book. It's a collection of books. 66 of them, actually, written by about 40 authors in three different languages on three different continents over a, sp a space of about 1,500 years. Uh, and even within that collection, there's a smaller groupings, like the book of Psalms, because remember, we, as we talked about, it's technically not just one book. It's a, it's a collection. It's a collection of uh, lyrical poems. Uh, and it's one of only two books in the Old Testament that identify itself as a composite work with multiple authors, and Proverbs is the other one. And, and I tell you all of that to point out that the Psalms are in the order that they're in on purpose. Because many of them uh, pick up where the previous one left off, like today's, as we come to Psalm 138. Uh, in fact, Charles Spurgeon said of it, he said, This psalm is wisely placed. Whoever edited and arranged these sacred poems, he had an eye to location and contrast. And I'm going to take that uh, quote and go one step further with it and say, in my opinion, the he that he's referring to there, although he doesn't spell it out, uh, could only have been the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, humanly speaking, this psalm that we're about to read doesn't belong where it is. Uh, not in category, not in timeline, not in author. And yet, and yet, it's the perfect complement to where we left off last week when we read in Psalm 137 the plea that asked, how shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? Right? How, how, do we, how do we praise the Lord when the land we're living in is increasingly so dark? Uh, how do we praise the Lord when we want to know when we're ever going to feel better? Uh, when we're ever going to find that life has gotten easier? Uh, when we want to know when those who are seeking to hurt us will ever stop or get their payback? How about when you want to know when the future is going to seem maybe not so frightening? When is deliverance that we've been seeking finally going to come? And so with all of that in mind, King David jumps back into the mix today inexplicably, uh, writing this week's psalm 14 generations before last week's psalm was ever thought of, and yet by the Spirit's inspiration speaking prophetically to generations yet unborn. And so I hope you have your Bibles with you, because you're not going to see it on screen. Not this week. Uh, and we're going to be reading Psalm 138, which is superscribed to Psalm of David. 
And he writes, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord for us today. And let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this precious song, for knowing that, as verse 2 says, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And so, Father, we approach both of them today in humble reverence, uh, asking that you lend us your Holy Spirit, because that's the only way we can be taught from the Scriptures. And so uh, we ask you, Father, to come upon us with your holy power and fill us with your presence and teach us, Lord, because uh, we want to see Jesus. And we ask these things through his name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, you know, I think that's a really beautiful psalm. I love Psalm 138. Uh, it's got a beautiful message of encouragement to people, people seeking after God and waiting patiently uh, on his promise to put the world right. Uh, and it's a message for waiting with perseverance and with confidence in the promise of God to shine a light on this dark world that we're living in and to send a deliverer, to send a shepherd to guide and protect and to bless his people, a leader to, to, as we read in the psalm, to, to look down from on high and regard the lowly and to answer us when we call. And, and to stretch out his hand against the wrath of the enemies of the covenant people of God through a glorious deliverance. And to do it, not just for the lifetime of a single human leader, but for eternity. And all of those ideas uh, put together actually lead perfectly into the liturgical season that we're in in the church right now. Uh, one that the church calendar focuses on from January the 6th through February 14th, and that is the season of Epiphany. It uh, begins with the Feast of Epiphany, or as some folks refer to it, Three Kings Day. And you can see it inside your bulletin. If you guys have your, I don't know what I did with mine, but if you have your bulletin, if you look right on the inside, op open up your bulletin. You got Hold it up, Miss Pam. Uh, can you show everybody where it says the season of Epiphany? It's right under where the lectionary readings for the week are. All right, that way you always know what season, whoops, sorry. You can look there and know what season of the church that we're in. Okay, um, and I realize that Pastor John kind of referenced this this morning too, because we have such a diverse denominational background of folks here, uh, a sizable number of people may never have heard of Epiphany before. Uh, and although I had heard of it, we never really celebrated it in the, the church that I grew up in. Uh, and I'd also be willing to bet that for those of you that are at least passingly familiar with it, that most of you have not been kept up at night wondering if I was ever going to preach a sermon about it. Uh, so, so rest assured if you have been. Uh, but it really, is a, it really is a significant period that sometimes gets lost between the bookends of Christmas and Lent. And so no matter 
uh, which camp you're in this morning, I want to take time to honor this season that's set aside to commemorate those enigmatic figures from a faraway land who brought gifts to the baby Jesus. And not because I have any desire to drag out a Christmas message when it's, it's nearly Valentine's Day, uh, or not because I have any special interest in the, the Magi per se, but because of what this holy time was really designed to memorialize, something that I think will apply to every person in this room. I know you can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, anybody in here not a Gentile? All right, good. That's okay. But th- this, this means this sermon is for you. Uh, because it's the spiritual dimension, if you will, behind what those wise men represented physically, and that is the light of the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the Son of God, not just to his special people Israel, which was awesome, but shining a light all the way down through the tunnel of time to you and me here today, to we Gentiles, to the nations, to every tongue and tribe and language on this planet, and aren't you glad that he did? Right? Because he could have just saved his chosen people, but he chose to reach out to the world. And so whether you're familiar with this liturgical time period or not, I hope this message will be meaningful to you because uh, when it comes to to Epiphany, as in all things, the truth of God's word and the real story behind the Magi, behind the wise men, uh, is much more intriguing and much more illuminating than our man-made traditions that we've attached to it. And so I want to share their story with you just briefly in the context of Scripture in general and of Psalm 138 in particular because, uh, of course, the only way to interpret Scripture is by other Scripture, right? And uh, to see what kind of got this whole ball of epiphany rolling, we need to take a look at a, a very strategic point in time around 500 years before the birth of Jesus and about 350 years after David wrote the psalm that I just read to you, Psalm 138. Uh, which takes us to the time of Israel's exile in Babylon, which we discussed last week, remember, in connection with Psalm 137. And so uh, it actually leads us in that to the life of another great man of God, a prophet that was there during that time by the name of Daniel. Everybody remember the story of Daniel? So, so that's the track you've got to keep in mind here, because there's no screens, guys, so you have to use your, you got to use your thinking caps with me today. Okay, so here's the track we're talking about, the path from the promise of a Savior to... Uh, a little shepherd boy named David, a promise that he weaves through all the worship songs that he writes, like Psalm 138 that I just read you, songs that eventually become a big part of the sacred scriptures that God's people hold on to years later when they're in exile, where the prophet Daniel not only carries that promise, but fans the flames and passes the torch forward, not just to the Jews in captivity, but to some of their captors in Babylon. Where if you remember the story that through a series of tumultuous events, remember Daniel came to the attention of the king of Babylon, right? where we talked about the Median exile last week. Uh, and it happened that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream that really shook him. It shook him right to the core of his being. It really troubled him past the point of being able to think about anything else. So he called together all of his magicians and his enchanters and his astrologers, but nobody could interpret his dream. Nobody that is except who? Daniel, right? So God interpreted the king's dream, sent the interpreter uh, through Daniel, who right then was one of the king's most junior officials, just some little minor bureaucrat in the back office of the palace to Daniel. And when Daniel, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, solved the king's problems, the king said to him in Daniel chapter 2, if you're following along in your scripture, Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, 
Your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men. That's the title that was reconfirmed on Daniel in uh, chapter 5, when the king's mother said, uh, There's a man in your kingdom in who the spirit of the holy gods resides. In the days of your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers. So in other words, what I want you to see here, Daniel was appointed, right, chief of the magi, chief of the wise men, a servant of God, to supervise these pagan sorcerers and these pagan stargazers in a foreign country. And church, sometimes God does stuff like that. Sometimes he puts his people in difficult and dangerous places, places filled with pagans and non-believers in order to be his witness and to deliver a message to people that we may not expect him to change. We talked about this in Sunday school. We don't know who God can change or use according to his will. And, and uh, someone to shine the light of God's love into the dark and chaotic world that we find ourselves in. And that's exactly what happened with Daniel and his life of ministry. And this is where the threads of everything I'm talking about start to pull together. Uh, because it happened through Daniel's love of the scriptures. Scriptures that were his refuge and his strength during that time in exile in Babylon. A life that found him, remember, even though he's one of the highest officials in the kingdom, he's still a slave. He's still a slave to a foreign king, a Gentile king, a pagan king. Uh, but because he held on to his faith, he would have clung to God's word. And he would have read about the, the life of King David who wrote our Psalm 138 today. He would have read it in the book of Samuel and in the books of Chronicles. And he would have taken comfort in the stories of how God had delivered David from his enemies. And not only that, Daniel would have turned for comfort to the book of Psalms. Right? He, it's easy to imagine he may even have prayed as he sought God daily uh, through Psalm 138 for himself and for his people to be rescued. Uh, not rescued just spiritually, but physically. He, he may very likely have, have prayed these very words that we read this morning from Psalm 138, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. I don't think that's much of a stretch to think he would have treasured that scripture. Uh, even if externally it didn't look like it was happening for him at the time, and he patiently waited for God to call his people back out of exile. And Daniel constantly shared his faith in the midst of a pagan land. And we know that because we know all the trouble that he got into. Right? Remember when he spent that night in the lion's den? It wasn't because he was shy about his faith. Uh, he spent that night in prayer. And the Bible records his prayers, his heartfelt cries, his pleas of such passion that there must have been tears streaming down his face as Daniel pleaded with God for the redemption of his people and to save them from captivity. Uh, and the Bible records it was during such a time of passion that Daniel had a vision. He had a vision courtesy of the angel Gabriel. Remember him? Same one who would later appear about 500 years later, in fact, to a teenage virgin named Mary. The Bible tells us Gabriel appeared to Daniel and spoke, and this is, this is what Daniel wrote down that he said. Daniel said, while I was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God in Jerusalem. And while I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight 
at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking to me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have uh, not come out, to, or I have come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word ran out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. And if you go on to read it, it's too long for me to read it to you now. That word and that vision that comes next, given to Daniel, uh, is a call and a vision about the 70 weeks, if you've heard the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. It's a detailed vision and timeline for the appearance of the Messiah that Daniel had been praying for. That one that he's been waiting for by faith, a faith that he passed on to those around him in that pagan land to help point them in the right direction. And he shared that faith with all of these astrologers and philosophers and all the, the gurus of the day. And hey, many, if, if not most of them, probably completely ignored everything that he said. But some of them didn't. And so the truth of God's word was spread even in the midst of difficulty and captivity, just as God's word always spreads. And so Daniel, through his witness and his testimony, but even more importantly, through sharing the scriptures, sharing God's word and its promises, would have passed on his faith and passed on that promise of a redeemer to a core group of believers. Believers who continue to hold on to that hope and to seek for signs of its appearing and to wait expectantly to find it. Because you see, God wasn't deaf to Daniel's prayers for deliverance. But it didn't mean he was going to send the Messiah that next afternoon, didn't it? No. In fact, he didn't even send it in Daniel's lifetime. But still, even right up to the end of his life, Daniel could have said in the words of Psalm 138 today, verse 8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. And he could pray that because he realized the promises of God are not just for one brief time period or for one kind of people or in one geographic area or for one man's lifetime, but they're for eternity. And now fast forward from that period, about 500 years, the prophet Daniel's long dead, but not his faith, not the faith that he passed on, not the truth of God's word. And this is where the gospel writer Matthew picks up the story. So Matthew chapter 2, we're told, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So the wise men say, We saw his star, but how did they know whose star that was? Why didn't they think it was a star of some portent for their own land? Why didn't they think it was a sign from some foreign pagan god? Uh, for that matter, since they were astronomers as much as astrologers, why didn't they go, hey, that's really cool. That's a really neat phenomenon for us to track and leave it at that. What's likely because these so-called magis were actually descendants of a core group of wise men, but in this case, men who were wise to the things of God, that Daniel had passed his faith on to in Babylon after his promotion by the king and in light of those heavenly visions that he received. Descendants of uh, of those men who Daniel had taught the scriptures to, right? Messianic scriptures, like they would have had access to in Numbers 24 that says of the Messiah, uh, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. See, and Daniel's wise men passed on these kinds of scriptures from father to son and person to person until that time came and that star appeared. And when they saw it, they began their journey to Bethlehem. These Gentile men, these, 
these foreigners to the kingdom of Israel traveling like 900 and some miles to find a long-awaited Savior that the supposed people of God weren't even looking for. God's people weren't even looking for because as we saw, remember when the wise men asked Herod about where he was going to appear, he was so blindsided he didn't even answer their question, did he? He just sends them away. And he has a powwow with his own wise men, the supposed religious leaders of Jerusalem, and, and Matthew continues that in verse 3. He says, when Herod the king heard this, heard the wise men's question about the newborn king, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him, Behold, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And, and you see, what, what I want you to catch is Matthew's primary point here, and Daniel's message and his vision, and David's hope and his comfort in Psalm 138 is this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets, and as we read in our psalm this morning, he is the lifter of the lowly and the punisher of the proud and the haughty. And he is the long-sought-after Messiah, and his birth time and his birthplace were not an accident. They were not random, and neither was his mission. A mission that one other wise man that we know from Scripture recognized in Jesus the moment he laid eyes on him. When a young couple named Joseph and Mary brought baby Jesus into the temple. And so this, this story continues in Luke chapter 2. Now there was a, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, when Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. But did you catch that? See, wise old Simeon said that the Christ would be a light for the Gentiles. That's you. That's me. And for the glory of Israel, that's the meaning and the message of Epiphany. And it's our job, yours and mine, to keep this story going and to proclaim it before the so-called gods of this world and in the face of its wicked rulers and in the midst of our pagan culture and to live for Jesus day by day whether he comes back now or 500 years from now. Because our God is not a God that remains elusive or remote. Our God is a God of epiphany. Our God is a God of self-revelation so that the blind would see and deaf would hear and prisoners would be brought out of darkness and the dead would come to life. Not by a religion, not by a code of ethics, not by a self-help guide or a hundred rules to follow, but by the Holy Spirit-illuminated presentation of the gospel. Amen. And church, that gospel just very simply is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, sent into this world to be born of a virgin, born under the law, to live out that law perfectly and go to the cross where he was lifted up to die, taking upon himself the sins of everyone who would believe in him through that great exchange where the worst about me was laid on him and the best about him has now been credited to my life and imparted to me in his death and to all who call upon his name 
If you haven't ever done that, would you do that now? What, what on earth are you waiting for? Will you admit to him in this moment how sick you are with sin and how sick you are of your sin and that you know that you're not able to save yourself? Will you call out in your heart and your mind for the light of Christ to shine in you and to illuminate all those sins that you need to repent of and all that baggage that you need to leave back behind in 2020 uh, and, and reveal to you the epiphany that he has been the only hope of mankind from Adam to David and from Daniel to Simeon, and from Simon Peter to the fledgling church 2,000 years ago, and it's still the best news that's ever been made to anyone on earth. The glorious good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, who we read this morning that God has exalted above all things, but who lovingly reaches down to you, wherever you are, and call you to himself. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you uh, for the, the long unfolding narrative of redemption. We thank you uh, for its promise in the beginning, its promise that you carried through all of your faithful men, that you carried into exile and brought back out and uh, brought to this nation, Lord, a light to the Gentiles, a light to us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you could have just saved your chosen people and you would have been right to do it, but in mercy you look to the whole world, and so we thank you for that love and for that knowledge. You know, Father, I ask if there's even one that's here today or one that's listening that doesn't know you as your, their Lord and Savior, uh, that you would surprise them in this moment by the power of your presence, that you would uh, open their minds, that you would open their ears, that you would change their hearts, and you would call them out of the death of sin that they're living in and into the life everlasting. And Lord, we trust you and know, Lord, that we preach the word and you do the work. And so we thank you for all that you're about to do this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.